welcome back to another episode of Cross and Crown Radio, an unapologetically Christian reconstructionist talk show for your edification and your enjoyment. Jesus is King. There is no neutrality, no exile, and there is no surrender. My name is Jason. With me on the phone is John. How are you, man? I am doing good in Oklahoma. How's Virginia hanging out? It's getting cold here. Is it cold there? Yeah, it just got kind of cold yesterday. Uh, there's actually some parts of the state that have like a foot of snow, but we didn't get much of that. Oh, okay. Yeah, no snow here, but it's it's getting chilly, and uh, we're we're hanging out. This is new, so you and I are going to figure this out as we go, apparently, uh, recording something like this. Yeah, <laughs> this is what a lot of people do, so we're, we're a little privileged almost to be able to record in person most of the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're trying out this sort of remote virtual setup. So yeah, yeah. Bear should, with us, friends. It should be fun. <laughs> yeah, thank you, all of you who have been listening and subscribing and hanging out with us for for quite a while now. Uh, it's been a couple of years doing the podcast, and it's changed its shape a time or two. Uh, but it's good to be back with you all. Uh, just a reminder: you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, pretty much anywhere you can find it. You can also catch us at lambsrain.com/ccr. And of course, as is always the case, you can support us. How might they support us? Uh, the best way to support us would be going to lambsrain.com slash support. Uh, you can give one time if you like, or you can give on a reoccurring basis. Everything just goes to uh, Lambs Rain and Cross and Crown Radio Operations. So paying for the website, paying for the equipment, paying for the software. Um, and we would uh, very much appreciate anything you can give. $1, $10 or more. It's fine. Definitely. Sounds good. Uh, the other thing, too, I know with Lamb's Rain, with articles and things that are going on there, lots of writing. Uh, we've had some great articles from Stephen Perks and others. Um, it, it's definitely a website we, we would love to have you all visit if you haven't yet. I'm sure most of you have at some point, uh, but we want to put you put you in touch with there. And also, you can find some books there. You can find some ebooks. Um, I have a couple of my books in PDF form there. Uh, our friend Dr. Joel McDermott, you can find some of his content there as well. So be sure to check out the bookstore that is there too. Well, John, so, you know, this is kind of an interesting discussion for us in, in light of everything that's going on. We are in December of 2020. The whole that's year, right. the whole year has been consumed with coronavirus. And uh, as of late, of course, there's stuff with the election and whatnot. Um, so we're going to talk not about any of that. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, not not to set people up falsely, but that we're not going to cover sure. any of that. So uh, it, it's sort of funny. Uh, a good friend of mine, um, he was asking us, he was asking me how many articles we've written about COVID or COVID-related articles, and I was like, oh, you know, a few. And I went back and thought about it, and I sent him a list. It was about like fifteen. <laughs> that, oh, I'm surprised so, by that so, number. Yeah, so I, it's it's over a dozen for sure. So we have a lot on it, and we definitely could do another episode on it. But we figure, it, I mean, we figure that it's it's covered. Yeah, well, and too, I mean, it's one of those things that, as far as we can tell, it's something that it's going to be around for a while. <laughs> the big talk is the vaccine, um, and again, we're still wrestling through the election. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. are still wrapped up in that whole thing. So there's kind of just a it's just a lot, and we didn't want to necessarily yeah. harp on that every single time. So, right. So yeah, no, I, uh, I, I agree for sure. Yeah, and um, 
2021 is not going to be the magic fix. Things aren't going to go away as soon as the new year comes along. So yeah, it'll it'll still be there. Yeah, history is sanctified by by the Holy Spirit, not our uh, wishes to escape time. That's for sure. Indeed. <laughs> so what are we covering instead? I mean, well, it's all connected, right? But yeah, it is. You know, last last episode we talked about the drug war, and this week though we're going to talk about something that kind of fits into that mantra, um, but it's the issue of immigration. And you guys might recall that last year this whole thing happened with the caravan, quote unquote, the caravan. Uh, yeah. Remember that? weren't weren't they going to invade us and take away all of our jobs? I think that's what. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. Of course, there's some history. Mm, weird. It, a lot of them that didn't end up coming. A lot of Mexico apparently turned a lot of people away, and so uh, it kind of filtered out um, after a while. But but you know, John, immigration is one of those things that's never going to go away, and. No. The thing is, too, though, because people might not see it in the news right now, don't let's not pretend that there aren't people um, at the border dealing with issues as we speak either. Oh, yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. So immigration. One of the things that I think we need to cover with this topic, especially because it's so volatile, we want to try, obviously, just like we did with the drug war to give you guys a, a biblical perspective a perspective that's rooted in presuppositions that are thoroughly biblical. And uh, one of the main things at the outset we need to cover is the fact that theonomy uh, needs to be over party politics. What does that mean, John? Uh, well, as theonomists, as Christian Reconstructionists, we are presuppositionalists. Um, that is going to be how we uh, really come at apologetics, but it's also about it's also very much the foundation how we think about ethics. Um, so what that means is that we're going to be going to God's word to really find our ideas on this. We're not going to be seeking out the conservative answer or the liberal answer or even the centrist answer. It's not about that. It's about what God's law says. And we think God's law says a lot about this. And, um, so we're really starting there for sure. And, um, this is actually very similar to what we talked about in our last episode with the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Is that we need to we need to start by thinking about what the nature, what the very foundational nature of God's law is. Does God's law exist to restrict the average person, and then it only gives permission to the average person to do X, Y, and Z, or does God's law re, uh, exist to actually restrict the government, to restrict the people in power, and restrict their powers over the regular people? If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the nature of God's law and the nature of how we should be governing our society is, is of one of liberty, where we start at a place of liberty, and then when God's law uh, prohibits something, then we enforce that prohibition, right? But we don't begin by assuming prohibition. So the starting place, the direction of the law, is, as R.J. Rushduni would call it, the direction of the law is one of personal liberty, which is oftentimes a restriction upon the government. But the actual individuals, the people, the little people, the serfs, you know, like us, <laughs> right. uh, we, we are in a position of liberty unless God's law says otherwise. So that, that's where we're starting, I believe. Yeah, that's a good point, because I think a lot of people end up starting with this presupposition of slavery. <laughs> like we're so, yeah. we're so used to uh, being controlled in day-to-day -day life by various things, whether that's 
um, car inspections every year or, uh, you mm. know, ordering uh, tags for your license plate and things like that. We just kind of go along to get along. And so we kind of assume this subservient position <laughs> when God's oh, law yeah. is... A, 100%. It's the law of freedom for a reason. You know, where the Holy Spirit is, there is freedom, not slavery. And I think that that's a, a helpful principle. And, and so ultimately these discussions end up becoming very unfruitful very quickly when we emphasize a particular political party's stance <laughs> or yeah. not just emphasizing that stance, emphasizing what we think is the stance. And I think you mm-hmm. pointed this out in one of your articles, John. I, I think it was from sure. a year or two ago. I can't remember now, but uh, just this idea that um, that the that the way we can reduce this down is simply, well, Republicans are for closed borders and Democrats are for open borders. And right. so that's the narrative. And that's the narrative. And that's a wrong narrative. <laughs> we know that yeah. Obama had a, a hand in building the cages at the at the border that we see. And we know that he was perpetuating. We're going to get into into this history in a minute. But we know that the person mm-hmm. that came after is only perpetuating it, whether it's a rhino, or a, 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 an elephant or a donkey, as it were. No, you're absolutely right. Democrats, uh, Democrats will support the same kind of immigration policies as Republicans, but they support the same so- sort of deportation policies with like a hashtag BLM, you know, rainbow flag smiley face, <laughs> while the Republicans do the same thing with more of like a like a scornful attitude, yeah. but ultimately like a sort of a xenophobic Donald Trump attitude. Um, but ultimately, when you get down to the nitty gritty, um, their policies are very similar. I'm not going to say that they're the same because they're not. Um, they're absolutely not the same, um, but oftentimes they're very, very similar. And depending on which Democrat as well, we can't act as if, it, if it's just, you know, the entire party agrees on this 100% of the time. Yes. A lot of the more powerful movers and shakers in the Democratic Party, see like the Barack Obamas or the Joe Bidens or the Hillary Clintons, are actually very, very centrist on immigration, which is actually going to be closer to Donald Trump's position. When you get into the more radical progressive leftists, that's where you get some differing ideas. Right. Yeah. And and so part of the reason we wanted to address this topic, even though you listeners may not think that this is very pressing at the moment, uh, is the fact that it is an ongoing issue. It's an ongoing issue. It was one of the hallmarks of President Trump's uh, attempt to be president when he was campaigning. Yeah was build the wall, sure. build the wall. You know, Mexico's going to pay for it. And, of course, that that never really happened. It never came to fruition yeah. for various it reasons. It was started, but it's definitely not even close to being finished. Yeah, uh, cost and all this other other things. And, and of course, a lot of things that come with being a president. There's a lot of other things you have to handle. Um, so, but anyway, I, part of the reason I wanted to start there was, obviously, you know, you've listened to this show, people... We have listeners who have been here for a while. They know we're theonomists. We believe in God's law, that that, that it's something that we should uh, love, it's something that we should very much uh, think to be important <laughs> in our lives. Um, yeah. So we want to strive towards that. Of course, we want to have servanthood dominion. That's our mindset. Um, but, but with that said, I, I know that the church, frankly, John, I mean, I, I, I remember back when I— um, I preached a sermon on this, and then it became part of the book Politics of Humanism. And I remember when I was Great writing book. that. Great book. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I remember when I was writing that, um, that one of the things I did was do a Google search. Or excuse me, not a Google search, but I went to Sermon Audio, and I typed in immigration. 
And there was a few things there, but most of them were uh, like news or radio show type things, not sermons. Mm -hmm. You know, you type in justification by faith, you get thousands and thousands of sermons. So I think it tells us a lot. Has the church failed to address this issue? And I think you and I both agree, absolutely. Um, We haven't addressed that issue. So not only haven't we addressed it biblically, we haven't addressed it at all. And and that's, uh, that's a problem. So I want to. No, I, I I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. it's it. I mean, the church isn't really even teaching the wrong view. They're just not teaching a view at all, <laughs> which means the predominant cultural view surrounding that particular church is going to be the one that wins. Right. Yeah. Well, let's let's dig into some of the history. Okay, I, I have some stuff here. And I'm going to try to go through this quickly in the interest of time. But there's a, there's a lot to say. Uh, the first thing is, well, what does the U.S. Constitution actually say? The U.S. Constitution, Article One, Section Eight. And it's the fourth clause. It says that Congress, by the way, that says Congress, not the president and not the Supreme Court. Congress has the power, quote, to establish a uniform rule of naturalization. John, what is naturalization? It is not immigration. <laughs> naturalization is the process in which you become a citizen of the United States. Yes. So Congress has granted that authority in the Constitution to do that, to decide citizenship. What's the process to become a citizen? So right. it's not... And this is also because I know how these arguments go. This isn't one of these rhetorical things that have changed over time. <laughs> naturalization meant naturalization at that time, and immigration meant immigration at that time. Right. Yeah. No uh, uh, anachronistic etymology problems here. So Right. So we're not talking about free individuals visiting a country or working there or crossing the border. Um, We are talking about Congress, not the executive branch, Congress giving the the, the authority to to deal with the issue of citizenship. So just a quick summary, all right? Um, On March 26th, it was 1790. So 1790, not long after we declared our independence from Britain, the Naturalization Act was passed. So the Naturalization Act simply limited the naturalization process, the process of citizenship, to, get this, free white persons who had good character. <laughs> so <laughs> so it didn't really start out very good, did it? No, no, no. And notice the word white. We'll come to that in a second. So in order right. to know who had a good character, they had to live two years in the U.S. They had to live at least one year in whatever state they lived in all before they applied, they could apply for citizenship. So it excluded American Indians, right? Natural Native Americans, uh, black slaves, and it excluded free blacks as well. Some states did actually allow for free blacks to have citizenship. So, you know, if you were overseas and you were a U.S. citizen, you in 1790, after this was passed, your child would become a U.S. citizen if you were overseas somewhere. So... Okay. That sticks with so us. So our, our takeaway is this this early, early act, uh, even though it has nothing to do with immigration, it's still not necessarily starting great. No, exactly. But. Yep. So the act was actually repealed in 1795, just five years re- later. There was another one replaced, uh, that one in 1798. And even that one was only four years before it was repealed in 1802. <laughs> So the, re- the repeals, the history of immigration law in, in America, the repeals kept coming because they were focusing on the time frame 
of when an individual could become a citizen. In fact, in 1798, it extended it to 14 years. Could you imagine? 14 years before you Gosh. could be a citizen. Now, one of, the, one of the first significant federal legislation pieces was in 1819, the Steerage Act. Uh, it established both the reporting of immigration to the U.S. as well as it basically outlined all the rules for ports and ships and passengers on board and those types of things. Now, you, you, you remember this guy, Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> yeah, I might recall him. Yeah, honestly. July 4th, 1864, he signed an act to encourage immigration. And this was the first of its kind. It was, it was basically Congress's first policy, which granted them centralized authority over immigration. So, you know, you and I know, both know when it comes to American history, it was Abraham Lincoln who really started to centralize everything. It was, became a very centralized machine, um, unfortunately, the central planning. Yeah, for sure. So the Senate gave the president power to appoint a commissioner of immigration. He was uh, subject to the Department of State. He could hold office for four years. He would make $2,500 a year. Uh, incredible. Um, 1875, <laughs> there was direct federal regulation of immigration, which prohibited the entry of prostitutes and convicts. And this was another okay. major leap forward with regard to immigration. You remember the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah. <laughs> signed by President Chester Arthur on May 6, 1882. All Chinese laborers could not come to America. And we both know this was a, an attempt at a racist attempt at nationalism and feder centralized federalism. Yeah. So 1891, the Bureau of Immigration was established. It was a central planning group. Um, the Immigration Act of 1903 followed, banning anarchists, people with epilepsy, beggars, importers of prostitutes, and so on. Uh, fast forward, Naturalization Act of 1906 was passed by Congress. It was signed by our friend Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> There's a really good book on Teddy Roosevelt by our friend Joel McDermott yes. you should read. Yeah, yeah, Theodore Roosevelt. Um, not, not great. The book's great. Not great. But not, not, not his presidency. Uh, <laughs> that law actually required immigrants to learn English in order to become American citizens. It was repealed, and then it was modified in 1990. So just a few more. You know, in the early 1900s, you had alcoholics, illiterates, and imbeciles. They, were, uh, <laughs> they weren't a lot allowed to come into the country. Um, there was an $8 tax per person on immigrants. Of course, the 1920s. The quota system came in. How many are we going to let in from which countries? Um, yeah. Uh, 1948, we limited our refugees to 205,000 over, over two years. Uh, two years later, in 1950, the communists were excluded. Subversives were deported. Um, in 1952, the Immigration Nationality Act. And one of the things that kind of really sped this thing forward you know, in the 70s and 80s, there was a change in, in refugee standards. That's a big thing. You remember a few years ago, we had the Syrian refugee crisis. Uh, right, exactly. And so this has not been the first time that this has been an issue. But in 1986, it was signed by Ronald Reagan. It was the Immigration Reform and Control Act. And if you get a job, one of the things you have to do is clarify and verify your citizenship status. So businesses could not knowingly hire, 
quote-unquote illegal immigrants. Um, you did have seasonal agricultural workers and so on, um, and there was an amnesty, amnesty agreement uh, as well. So you had people who became citizens just by fiat declaration uh, okay. from Reagan. Couple more, and then we'll, we'll, well, I don't want to belabor the point, but September 30th, 1996, Bill Clinton, the Bill Clinton, signed the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, uh, mostly deportation standards. Uh, the interesting thing about this act, actually, it also gave authority to the Attorney General to construct barriers along the U.S. Mexico border. So, okay, that's relevant. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you think of like the border conversation. Let's go go right there. And then of course, Republican President George W. Bush, the Homeland Security Act of two thousand two. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security was brought out of thin air, took control of everything, including uh, immigration enforcement. Uh, Bush also signed the Secure Fence Act in two thousand six. So border checkpoints, uh, authorized vehicle barriers preventing people from entering our country, quote-unquote, illegally. So there's been a lot uh, in our American history. Um, any any <laughs> observations on your part from that? <laughs> uh, well, one of the big takeaways that I'm seeing here is that as far as um, actually limiting immigration, it took some time for us to actually get laws that did that. Yeah. It took a while. It kind of perpetuated in the 1900s, and you know when you had a lot of people immigrating from Europe and coming to America. Um, yeah, they, especially starting with like the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah. Um, but before then, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was fairly open. Yeah, it was. Yeah, they had they had a basic early on, right after the Declaration of Independence was signed. They did have some standards. Uh, for for uh, immigration and people coming to America, uh, but for the most part, it was it was very simple. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't hard. Yeah. So, but some of the first restrictions were against like convicts, like convicted criminals and prostitutes. Uh-huh. And of course, right. yeah, yeah, and you had the hypocrisy of black slaves. Um, even free blacks weren't allowed to. So there's that whole tangled mess as well. But basically, it's kind of the same trajectory as the drug war. Um, when you have Nixon in 1971, not only starting the drug war, but taking the gold standard away. <laughs> and so it's kind of this domino effect. So all this stuff, these conversations that we have today about immigration, all of it, it, it didn't just come out of thin air. There's been a history of ongoing centralized planning and socialist controls. And so, yeah, that's just a nut, nutshell, but obviously it's a nation, nationalistic fervor and it continues to grow. There's a lot of vehemence and vitriol over immigration. A lot of racist policies, assume, yeah, big time. you know, assuming that everyone that crosses the Mexico-U.S. border is a drug dealer. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's shameful. It's shameful. So that's yeah, that's the history. And I, I think one of the things we need to do then is take that now that we kind of know the history. Let's deal with the biblical categories um, that we find that we find there. And obviously you and yeah. I, John, for us, we look to the old Testament for a lot of answers. 
<laughs> if if you're a new listener and you want to know how in the world we come to that conclusion, go back and listen to our theonomy episode where we critique uh, the nine marks crowd and their faulty understanding of theonomy. But we go to the Old Testament for a reason, and that reason is because the Old Testament is part of the Bible, and we can learn a lot right. from it. And for us, you know, you don't, we're not going to get out of this predicament by walking away from the solutions. And, and we know America is not a covenanted nation in the sense that, it, you know, by and large, it wants to honor Jesus Christ and exalt his law and, and, you know, base justice on his law. So we know that. But, you know, we don't want to abandon the Bible. We need to know what direction to go towards at the very least. Like we know we're not there right now, but we need to know that that trajectory. Yes. Well, Numbers 15, 15, and 16 says this. These are basic. There are lots of other passages. Maybe you have some too, but there are lots of other passages, but this is a key one. It says, As for the assembly, there shall be for both you and the resident alien a single statute, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You and the alien shall be alike before the Lord. You and the alien who reside with you shall have the same law and the same ordinance. Okay. All right. So that that presupposes that they're there. Yeah, they're in the borders. <laughs> right. They're there. Yeah. Exactly. So we want to be loving, right? We want to be loving. Love is the fulfillment of the of the law. Romans thirteen ten. So in order for us to be loving, we need to go to the law to know what what love actually is. And for for us to be loving the stranger, which the Bible says repeatedly in various places, uh, we need to to know what the law says. And basically, you had um, there was one law, <laughs> right? Not not one law for citizens and one law for another person who was outside of citizenship in Israel. There was a one law. Uh, Israel was a judicial government. Of course, the executive power grew with Solomon. Um, and uh, or saw rather when they wanted a king like the other nations, um, but there was one law, there was one standard, one statute, one ordinance, that being the law of God. So, <laughs> not multiple laws, not laws that apply to you and me, John, because we're U.S. citizens. But it doesn't apply to the young man who wants to come to America to start a business because he knows that he'll have better success here than wherever he's at. And. Because there is one law, God's holy standard, the differentiation between people, and this is, and you can speak to this, John, because the, the differentiation between people is always covenantal, right? It's not racial. It's not even primarily nationalistic. Uh, there was never a point in time in Israel's history where they were defined exclusively by bloodline. No, exactly. And we see many many examples within God's law, within the Old Testament, as well as the new, of people who do not share that kind of Hebrew, Hebraic blood, a Judaic blood, um, coming into the covenant. And then once they're in the covenant, sharing in all of the benefits of the covenant that would come with citizenship into the, into the kingdom of God at that time. And uh, it was never primarily based on in, in blood at all. So whenever we're dealing with immigration, yeah, there are there are distinctions, but there's one law, just like you were saying. And the distinction was always covenantal. So they could be an immigrant and not be in the covenant, and that would be the distinction, right? Um, 
And, and so, for example, they wouldn't be able to say, like, be making blood sacrifices to their pagan gods within the nation, but that doesn't mean they can't come into the nation. Um, we even have texts in scripture outlying where they can sell their goods and uh, issues issues like that to the point where if they weren't even allowed in, it wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, there's two categories of people in the Bible, and I want to deal with these. Um, they're two different Hebrew words, but for the sake of just simplicity, you had the sojourner. The sojourner was yep. a naturalized citizen, to, so to speak, right? Someone who was actually living in the land, but this person was someone who came from outside of Israel, came to Israel, covenanted with God. Presumably they went through a circumcision ceremony. They were converts, essentially. They could partake of the Passover meal, actually. They adopted the faith of Israel. They worshipped uh, the God of Israel, and that's who they were. They were the sojourner. But then you had the foreigner. Now, the foreigner mm-hmm. was somebody who li- was living in the land, but they were not in covenant with God. Not They were uncircumcised. They did not practice uh, the faith of Israel. In fact, they didn't partake of any of the festivals, any of the meals, any of those types of things. And as you alluded to, any attempts at subverting that social order would have been squashed because there's one law for everyone. And that includes people who are in covenant with God in the land and people who are not in covenant with God in the land. So the the emphasis, as I see it in Scripture, um, is always this idea that uh, covenant is what matters more than anything, right? Non-biblical law, humanist law, always places race or blood or ethnicity, nationality, all of it above morality and biblical faith. So... that's, I think, an important piece for us to keep in mind when we have a, have discussions like this. Membership was covenantal. It was always covenant. It, yeah. it wasn't bloodline. and uh, It wasn't bloodline or that kind of nationalistic, almost like modern. It's really modern concepts anyway that I think a lot of people are trying to put onto Scripture. Absolutely. So I think we've we've established that obviously immigrants would come in, right? And sometimes they would stay and work and even live. Um uh, but I think the, the retort would be from many people, at least, that they're not opposed to immigration. They're opposed to what they would call like illegal immigration. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we we have to do more. And uh, I think the the idea that uh, is being sort of uh, uh, um, pushed by at least most of the conservative crowd is that they have a moral justification for restricting the free travel of non-criminals into the nation. And I think oftentimes the way they, they argue for this biblically is to say that Israel had borders. <laughs> and they would say, you know, John, Jason, Israel had borders, and we need to respect those borders. And that is oftentimes one of their arguments. It's, of course, not the only argument. We don't have time to go through all of the arguments, but I will go through a few of them. Um, and, and I think that is one of the one of the arguments that come up again and again and again. Uh, they'll go to, uh, for example, Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. Uh, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which is the men, uh, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So the idea is that there are landmarks that mark people's property, and there was also landmarks that marked um, the Holy Land and marked the kingdom. And it was wrong to go move those landmarks. 
And there's also many texts in the Old Testament just talking about boundaries and borders. And God obviously uh, respects the moral legitimacy of much of those concepts throughout history. Um, however, that those texts, and I, I think this is where we need to be really clear, those texts don't have anything to do with immigration. Uh, they don't have anything to do with allowing an individual or a family or a tribe even to move between one location to another. Mm-hmm. The, the, these borders had to do with, if it was private, of course, it had to do with ownership. Uh, but if it was national borders, it had everything to do with jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the big issue is that whenever you are a foreigner coming into Israel, you are now in the jurisdiction of Israel. Right. And that border means a lot. And so we don't want to diminish God's word. We don't want to make it out to be less than it is. Uh, we're not saying those texts are meaningless or that we're dismissing them or ignoring them, but we are saying that the distinction here is jurisdiction, not as if the Israelites had a border control troops on the border making sure nobody went into the nation and it, it didn't it didn't work like that at all there's no evidence of that at all there's no scriptural evidence of that at all there's no historical or archaeological evidence of that at all yeah um but there is the idea of a jurisdictional change when they cross that border they're now under the lawful jurisdiction of god's law yes so you might say then to sum that up <laughs> that borders are for governments not people. That's a great way of putting right? it. Right? Orders are for governments, not people. Yeah. And we kind of have a back. National borders, at least, right? Yeah. 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 And I think God's assumption in the Bible is that people will gather. People will have uh, the biblical authority to set up a government to punish evil, which is what Romans 13 yeah. says is their job. And those that type of um, sharing of the earth and dominion mandate and all those things is assumed. It's assumed that... Um, Israel would grow and influence the nations. And of course, we know in the New Testament, that's actually what, what happens with the gospel. Yeah. So the, Immigration is seen as a blessing, not a curse. Right. In fact, um, you see the stories, uh, or not the stories, but the illustration of, of the mustard seed that Jesus says about his kingdom. And the nations will come and uh, they're, they're the birds making their, making their nest in, in the tree. Um, and I think that's the same visual we see in the book of revelation the the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and yeah so this this because you've heard it too i'm sure well you know sounds like heaven has gates <laughs> which <laughs> sure interestingly enough they're open <laughs> but uh there's that whole thing um there, there's other gates that aren't open exactly and so I think what, what ends up happening in these conversations is that people, instead of having this ethical, judicial, what we call covenantal understanding of immigration, it's always the talking points of liberals and conservatives, which end up being the same talking points. Um, that, that's why it's so difficult for me to, and I know you're the same way, but to really get behind a Republican candidate, um, because this is an issue where they just, they just get it wrong. And, yeah, really wrong. And, yeah. and it's wrong to the point where it actually does hurt people. Um, yeah. Just a couple more things I want to say on, on biblical categories. Uh, one of them is the principle of ownership, by the way. Uh, <laughs> we don't own the land. God owns the land. 
the state doesn't own the land. God is the creator. He holds the deed to the earth, that sort of thing. And, and um, I think that's that because that principle is, is true, that we have a derived ownership, something that God gives us, um, that, that when we view the land as something we steward and, instead of something we control, then maybe our perspective changes <laughs> a little bit yeah, more. I think so. I think so. Yeah. And, um, but a lot of times, even the Republicans are guilty of this too, but they'll throw this principle of God's ownership out the window completely. And they'll start arguing in terms of collectivist socialist terms. You know, this, mm. they're taking our jobs. This is our country and yeah. you know, our nation. And, and, and so ownership <laughs> means nothing. <laughs> because I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you catch on to this as well, Jason, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do. But it's always fascinating to me the kind of language that, say, conservative commentators on Fox News or wherever use. Well, the, when they're talking about something like healthcare, they they'll call it socialized healthcare. <laughs> you know, it's like really scary. Yes, you yes. know, and they'll say socialized healthcare. <laughs> you know, um, but whenever they're talking about education, it's just public education. You know, good old American public education. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> um, so what are what are the what are the principles that we're dealing with? What makes healthcare socialized, but not education socialized? Yeah, or in grocery stores. And then stores. we get to <laughs> when we get to this question. Uh, our borders are completely socialized. It's not ran by the people who actually own the land. It's definitely not dictated by God, who is sovereign and transcendent over all of that worldly ownership. Um, so what is it? It's socialized. It's socialized immigration policies. Yeah, and that's inevitably what happens when you have a statist ideology that's fueled by a humanist worldview. Collectivism becomes the primary means of... Uh, of achieving whatever it is they're intending to achieve. It's always about the collective. And the Bible never gives government permission yeah. to control the free flow of people. People who visit or work or vacation freely, governments are not permitted to to encroach upon the, that individual's right to to move on this God-given earth. <laughs> yeah. And and I think you really you really hit it right there. And I, I think we need to slow down just for a second and make this really clear that I think is the vital thing that people would need to prove where in God's law does the government, uh, when does, when in God's law does the government have the authority to actually restrict that travel of free individuals? Where does it happen? Where is it given that authority? Um, and I don't think it's, 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 it's not in there. It's just not there no. at all. Cause I think that is what needs to be proved. Again, if we're starting at a place of Liberty, the onus is actually on the strict border control person to prove their position because we're starting at Liberty. If we are starting at Liberty as Christian theonomists, uh, as just Orthodox Reformed Christians, if we're starting at the idea that the direction of law is liberty for the individual, then you actually have to show in Scripture a prescription for the government to restrict the travel of free individuals. Yeah. Uh, that's what they have to show. We don't have to show a text in Deuteronomy that says, thou shall not make border control laws. We don't have to show that. Uh, we don't have that burden of proof. They do. 
And I will say this too on that note, the burden of proof is not when Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through their land. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, why is that, Jason? We've heard this a whole lot. Of course, oh, yeah, yeah, Edom in, in Numbers 20, verse 18, but Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with the sword against you. So we're dealing with mm-hmm. not only um, Edom, of course, being judged by God, <laughs> throughout the rest of the Old Testament, essentially. Um, (laughs) Just kind of a, that's what happens with Esau as your, as your dad. But um, this wasn't a a good thing. In fact, um, Israel was acting very passive in in a pot. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but in a positive sense. And, and by respecting that (laughs) and not, they they were asking for permission. They went to them humbly, asked for permission. Um, and the pagan nation, and to be very clear, very pagan nation that hates God, um, enacted their strict border control policy right, upon Israel. Right. This and this is an example of how not to do it, not how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I've done quite a bit of research on immigration in Scripture. I'm not, you know, claiming to be some world class expert on it, but as far as I understand, the the only examples in all of Scripture of a nation enacting strict border control policies are pagan nations. And it's almost always against God's people. Yeah, exactly. Against Israel. In fact, Israel, if you remember, uh, for those who may not be familiar with the passage, uh, they even said, look, we'll we'll come, we'll we'll, we'll drink your water and feed our livestock and we will pay you for it. Um, They were even, they were even willing to, to uh, assume the cost of passage. Uh, But Edom, actually said no. So, yeah, not a not a great passage <laughs> in no, terms of something that upholds righteousness. Um, so I mentioned the principle of uh, ownership and the fact that God uh, allows us to steward the land, to own land, not the state. And, of course, you, you and I know this. You, you go to the border in Mexico, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border, and you have people that own land. And uh, the issue of eminent domain comes into this, right? Yeah, the gov- who owns the land? Yeah. yeah, government comes in, they take the land, confiscate it from people who, who've had it, and perhaps even in their family for a long time, all in the name of, well, we need to put a road here so we can get our, our Humvees and, and other uh, vehicles through. And so they just take the land that's theft. So, um, and, and John, you need to deal with the locked door front, the, the locked front door fallacy. Oh yeah, okay. So <laughs> let's deal with this that is something one. you'll hear. <laughs> this is something you'll hear, even even from people I respect and like. Sometimes uh, they'll they'll say we should have strict border control policies because, well, I lock my door at night. <laughs> um, and then the idea is that if I have the right to defend my property, then the United States has the right to kind of close their doors as well. Um, and I think the the problem with this hinges on the concept of property. And this really ties into what, Jason, you were just saying. The reason why you are allowed as a American citizen, and hopefully wherever you are, you're allowed to do this, right? Uh, we have listeners, a few different countries for sure. Um, the reason you're allowed to lock your door at night is because you own your own home. Right. Or you have the authority of the jurisdiction, too, because you're renting. So there's an agreement or you own your own home. So you have the legal authority to lock your own door at night. Uh, Now, what do you not have the authority to do? You don't have the authority to, say, go to your neighbor's house and lock his door. 
you don't you don't have the right to go padlock your neighbor's house against his will. Uh, you also don't have the right to build a fence around your apartment complex and deadbolt that. Uh, the idea is because you don't own that entire apartment complex. You don't own your neighbor's home, so you don't have the right to restrict their travel or the travel of other people trying to get into those homes. You don't have that right or authority because it's not yours. So when you say, conservative Christian, when you say that the United States has the right to enact strict border control policies because you have the right to lock your door, you're saying that the United States federal government owns the entirety of the United States legally and ethically. That's the concept that is being presupposed in that statement. Because in that, in that statement, you're saying that the United States government owns the entire United States and is allowed to essentially cr- treat our entire nation as if it's its own home. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that f- do y'all follow with that? Yeah. You have to have the presupposition of ownership to make that argument, to make it make sense. Uh, or else you are essentially saying, I can go lock whatever doors I want to lock. No, the reason why you're allowed to lock doors is because you have that authority. If the United States government is allowed to restrict travel across the entire nation, and that's what immigration is. Uh, when you restrict travel on the border, you restrict travel everywhere in the United States. Um, that's good. Yeah. The land that we occupy, yeah. the land that America occupies is not owned by the collective. There, that's not a thing. That's right. It's not a thing. That's right. <laughs> but... um. I've I've also heard this this kind of this other side argument, and it should not take long to talk about. But uh, uh, what would you do with somebody, Jason, that said that? Well, Jerusalem had walls, and um, <laughs> Jeruz- Jerusalem had a gate. Uh, what about Nehemiah when they're guarding the gate at night? Yeah, well, two, two things. One, um, the city was obviously the central place of commerce, marketplace, uh, business transactions. Uh, you would go there. It was very much a center of economic activity. Um, but okay. we're talking about a city, not the entire nation of Israel. Um, oh, yeah. Right. So be, part of the reason uh, for that was to protect, um, in a lot of ways, uh, their people, uh, people who mm-hmm. were there doing business. And uh, so if there was ever an encroaching army or something, you actually have a defense uh, because that's where you go. You go to take out their ec- economic stability um, so that's like if we wanted to build a wall around Wall Street, I guess, fine, um, ironically, <laughs> Wall Street. <laughs> but um, but that's not the same thing as a nation either. Um, there was never a border wall built by David in all David's glory days of leadership and border expansion and influence of Israel. Then there was never a border. So it's just a, it's fallacious to say, well, Jerusalem had walls, therefore America can as well. You're, you're conflating. Uh, a nation, one city, um, v- versus you know the entire uh, nation. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Like, what is the purpose of the wall? Uh, when you're talking about the walls of Jerusalem or the walls of any of these um, ancient or middle middle age um, cities, there there those walls exist because of ancient or middle age siege warfare. That's it's because of warfare. Uh, it's not because of immigration control. They, they didn't build these walls to restrict immigrants. They built these walls to protect against catapults and trebuchets. Um, and it's a completely different thing. So perhaps if Mexico builds an army of 
peasants and trebuchets, uh, a, a national wall would be relevant, but, um, and they try to invade us, but that's, that's not really the situation we have. Uh, so yeah, Jerusalem has walls, but it was for military purposes, not immigration purposes. Yeah. And I'm kind of, I'm, I'm just, uh, thinking real quick, like some examples of walls in history that were national. I mean, it's like, we have Trajan's wall, um, to protect the, the Roman occupiers of Britain against the, uh, the pagans in the north. Right. Um, and you have like the Great Wall of China protecting against the Mongolian invaders. Uh, but you don't have an example of this within Israel. You don't have an example of this within um, Israel at all. Right. And in fact, if, if, if you want to appeal to any walls, who could forget the Berlin Wall, which was built by yeah. ta da, socialists, ta-da, communists. Socialists. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Walls are often time to build to keep people in, not just keep people out. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, one other thing I was going to say too on, on that note that I, I think once you get the principle of ownership down, and you get the principle of covenant down, you really have a biblical mm-hmm. grounding, so to speak, for a proper view of immigration. If you don't have those two principles of ownership and deriv- derived ownership. Uh, and stewardship and th- those types of things, and the role of the state, you, you just you can't have a coherent social theory for immigration. It just won't work, and it, it'll never work um, because you're starting with humanistic yeah. law and and not God's law. Um, so no, you're absolutely right. Which is which is why, and I, I guarantee some listeners are going to be, what about the economic impact of? Uh, immigrants, you know, they're going to be asking those questions and those aren't bad questions. I don't, um, but that's why we're not focusing on that. Yeah. We can talk about that. And honestly, I don't think the economic impact is, is very concerning. Um, I don't think many of us should really should be paying taxes. So if immigrants don't, then I don't, you know, good for them. Pat on the back. Yeah. They're basically acting like an American millionaire getting out of paying taxes now. So well, whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, and truth be told, they do pay taxes and they don't Ill, Ill, quote unquote illegal immigrants, um, non-citizens, you know, they can't get welfare. They, they have to, uh, yeah, for sure. They have to pay taxes. So they actually have a short end of the stick on that. Um, no, they do. But speaking of socialism, let's deal with that real quick because we know let's do it. it's a large, <laughs> it's a large problem. Um, it's bad, and, and a lot of Let's us, a lot of us picked up. You, you probably saw AOC, um, the big thing with her. She put out these sweatshirts. It says "Tax the Rich," and it's a sixty-five, oh goodness, sixty-five dollars yeah. sweatshirt. So people are freaking out. You know, you got to be rich to buy one. That's an expensive sweatshirt, frankly. Yeah, it is an expensive sweatshirt, and it, it's sort of funny because although it is expensive, it's not really that much more expensive than similar garments made in America because of all of our tariffs and regulations. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, you know, not the thing I would really go hard on AOC about, but it's just a blatant example of not really understanding how any of this works. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But in the point of bringing that up though, it is for a good laugh mostly, but um, it's just this yeah. issue of socialism itself and how we, you know, tend to in our, in our nation, especially in the political realm, uh, fight against the the left and say, well, the left they have uh, socialism is what they want, and and but but us Republicans we don't want socialism, which you know their version of socialism is is uh, apparently okay, um, but mm-hmm. Bernie's too far left that sort of thing. But uh, part of the reason I want to deal with this is because this conversation on immigration is it does connect to the issue of socialism. It does and absolutely. Because we have a large problem of socialism, 
Um, again, Marks, Marks himself was for closed borders uh, because he didn't mm-hmm. want any of the good artisans and people to come in and mess with his proletariat bourgeoisie plan. Um, so it's very social. Mar- Margaret Sanger was a huge advocate of strict border control yes. policies. Yeah. You, um, eugenicists typically are, are in that category. So right. um, th- those types of socialistic ideas, though, are are pagan. They're bad, and they're bad for humanity. They're bad, and we've seen millions of people die at the hands of socialism, not just the abortion holocaust um, here, uh, but worldwide. Uh, Stalin, communist mm-hmm. China, Pol Pot, uh, you know, the great leap forward that really was a terrible leap backwards for a lot of people. Uh, so socialism just generally is this problem. And, and at the root with this connection to immigration, the root issue, of course, is uh, government trying to control people, <laughs> trying to control yeah. the flow of people. And so the, so the person who objects and says, well, well, our welfare system, it's just it's it's enticing immigrants to come here so they can take our jobs and and take our welfare. And well, uh, maybe I'm sure there's someone who wanted to come and I mean, get welfare, but. Isn't isn't the statement "come here to take our jobs" so full of like Marxist entitlement? That job only belongs to you because somebody who owns a business or somebody who's a manager in a business gave you that job. Yeah. It doesn't belong to you, right? <laughs> well, that's just it—the socialist idea of collectivism, and this is mine. This is this is ours, and yeah. so I mean, that's jobs don't belong collectively to Americans just because you say they do. Yes, they belong to the people who own the job, they yeah. own the business, and and that ties into again ownership. You, John, and I, in, as individuals, we have ownership over the work of our hands. We're supposed to be people who are productive and making things right. and doing business and growing business and, and all these other things. So. Um, socialism just comes in and it messes it up. So I'm sympathetic. My point is, though, I'm sympathetic to the person who says, well, the welfare, welfare, welfare. Yeah, I want to see that gone, too. But because that's socialistic nonsense as well. But that right. if the church isn't going to provide a safety net, who is the state each and every time? So no, you're absolutely right. all that. All that to say, John, well, did you want to add something there? Oh, I would I would just say if. If you're looking for a good resource against socialism, uh, specifically the idea of Christian socialism, because oftentimes progressives, um, Christians, um, will say that Jesus was a socialist, right? And they'll, they'll kind of make those arguments. Uh, I would recommend David Chilton uh, for sure on this subject. Uh, he wrote a book called Productive Christians in Age of Guilt Manipulators. And it was a response to a Christian socialist. Uh, his name was Ronald Sider. He used to be kind of a big deal, not really a big deal anymore. Um, but it is a phenomenal book. And David Chilton, who's one of my favorite post-millennial theonomists, uh, just demolishes this idea of socialism. Yeah. And, and and there's this there's this idea sometimes within certain circles that just like we've talked about already a little bit, that we're kind of putting forth this liberal idea. But that's really not the case at all. Uh, David Chilton's about as conservative as you get. And um, he said this about immigration. He said a lot. He has an entire section in this book on immigration. So I'll only read maybe a sentence or two. Yeah, it's good stuff. But he's, he's, he says that, uh, uh, not that our borders shouldn't be protected against military invaders and criminals, but mere immigration is not a crime. Virtually all of the activity of immigration 
of the Immigration and Naturalization Service is thus a flagrant violation of the law of God. Uh, it's pretty strong language, Mr. Chilton. But, <laughs> Very but strong. I, but, I, but I agree. And um, I think that is, is really impactful. And I, I would say, um, uh, in addition, like uh, Dr. Gary North has said also some very strong statements about immigration um, that would that would definitely lean more in what we're trying to say. So this is not some sort of unheard of novel thing that we're just kind of pulling out of thin air. Uh, we know that there have been reconstructionists in the past who were different on this position than we are. Um, but I sincerely believe and um, really wrestle with this, but I sincerely believe that they are getting their ideas more from a conservative subculture and not a consistent theonomic hermeneutic. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest issues <laughs> as far as just us being consistent. Uh, that's I think immigration is the probably the, the number one issue um, where we lack consistency. Uh, yeah, just by and large, I think so. uh, you know, and it, it's sad to see some theonomists who uh, can't quite see that. <laughs> so they just yeah. toe the party line and and uh, without really any thoughtful response to it. So, John, mm-hmm. um, we don't have a ton of time left, but I, I really thought we, sure. we should probably end with what is the way forward? <laughs> I mean, you know, if you if we could change it, how could we change it? And what 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 should we do? What do you what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, we, we sort of led with the idea that the church isn't speaking on this. So um, as sort of a introduction to what we should do, I think the first thing we really need to do is be open about what God's word has to say about this. Don't be afraid to preach on this. Don't be afraid to teach on this. Don't be afraid to have Bible studies on this or look into it. Uh, it is not a spiritual or a biblical. Uh, it is theological. Immigration is a theological issue. So don't be afraid of it. It is as theological as everything else. Uh, so deal with it. Mm-hmm. And we might come out on different ends, but at least you dealt with it. At least you really wrestled with it. So I'm asking you first and foremost to just study it. Um, but I think as far as practically, like what it, as the nation should do, um, I don't think that we should get rid of our borders. Jurisdiction matters for sure. I think that known wanted criminals should be stopped at the border as much as possible. Um, but as far as non-criminals wanting to come into the United States to settle, to, to do business, to just travel to see friends or family or to vacation, I, I, don't, I don't see an issue with that. Yeah, they should be able to do so unencumbered by any legislative nonsense that, that is um, ungodly. You know, a lot of a lot of this, uh, just like the drug, the drug war, or you know, to some degree, immigration falls into that category where uh, it seems like the political left is a little more. It, it seems like it, whether or not they actually follow through with it, that's a different issue. But it seems like they're more right. prone to say, okay, yeah, let's let's uh, have better immigration laws and let's um, legalize things that are okay to be legalized and that sort of thing. And I think that their impulse is generally a little bit better on that. Yeah. But as you said, I don't, I don't, I think oftentimes the policies end up being fairly uh, moderate and not in a good way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's still, it's still problematic in terms of comparing it to biblical law and it's still unconstitutional as it stands anyway. Um, Absolutely. Because of centralized yeah. power. Um, but, but the reason I compare those issues is because I think that's, 
essentially where the nation has to go. If we're going to cry out to God in repentance and turn to him and, and look to his law, then something like immigration would change. Uh, it, it would change in terms of the free, um, you mentioned taxes earlier. You know, let's, let's just stop with the crazy taxation. Um, let's let That's people right. come and do business if they want to work. And, and uh, you have a, a, a young man who's coming here from, I don't know, Guatemala, wherever, and he loves, yeah. he loves lawn care. And so he wants to start a lawn care business. Let the man do it, you know, without... Or oftentimes what happens is that the United States foreign policy goes and wrecks havoc on people's homes. Yeah, yeah. And then they want to come here as a refugee. And we're like, no, you're not really, you know, you're, we're not really your keeper. You know, yes. we're, we're not responsible for you. Um, and I think that's just terrible. Yeah. And that's what we've seen in South America with uh, Central and South America is that a lot of times our foreign policy, uh, sometimes our drug policy, um, oftentimes our drug policy, causes so much of the turmoil and the criminality in these nations. And then when people try to escape that, we turn them away. Yeah. Or in the case of Syria, we um, endorse and back armed violence there and sometimes drop our own bombs there. And then when people want to come over to the United States for just to be able to to live and to not be bombed by drone stri- strikes, we, we turn them away. Yeah. yeah, CIA-backed coups, political coups, all these things. We mess with their country. We bomb yeah. their homes and then say, well, you actually can't come here anyway. That's right. Good luck. And again, like there is a lot to talk about as far as the economics and all the, you know, people... People have this mentality that there's going to be these massive armies and hordes of people when, when really almost none of them could fill up the you know the Chicago Bears stadium, um, and it's really it's just the numbers sound big until you actually start comparing the numbers to actual numbers of populations in the United States. And it's really not that significant, right, right. Um, but our our first duty is not to. Um, do a detailed analysis on whether or not my paycheck will take a hit. Our first duty is to honor God's law, mm-hmm. and that is to love the foreigner. And we don't love the foreigner by turning them away. Yep. And that, and that sometimes might mean, um, just like the uh, some of the uh, folks in Germany had to lie to the Nazi guards about whether or not they had Jews in their home. Uh, perhaps, yeah. perhaps you need to protect immigrants who want to work and provide for their family. And perhaps that's right. It could look like that as well. So there, yeah, there's a lot there, but I think we pretty well covered the topic uh, as best we can in an hour episode. <laughs> yeah, I know we could, we could, we could go quite some time and there's actually quite a few resources that I would like to link on this particular episode. Our, our friend Bojar Marinov has a very good, I think three part, uh, series on this subject. Um, there's been a number of articles written by myself and others on this that we will also link. Yeah. All right, brother. That sounds good, man. Enjoy Oklahoma. And uh, thanks, man. We'll hopefully have a what's a have a great uh, time doing Christmas decorations or whatever you guys are doing. Yeah, yeah. We we got our we got our Christmas tree up to celebrate Christ, who is the light of the world. So. Uh, yeah, your pagan Yule tree. Yeah, that that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Stay safe too, brother. Yes, indeed. Well, hey, thank you all for tuning in and listening. And if if the Lord is sovereign over this, uh, it'll get edited down and it'll be a, a great uh, video for you all to enjoy. Um, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll make it. We'll make it happen. But until next time, uh, 
Jesus Christ is King. Let's honor him, let's serve him, and let's carry out his will. Grace and peace. Thank you.